Welcome to the Grappling Discourse Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Scaff, and today I'm joined by one of my good buddies, Phil Schwartz. Phil is one of the best coaches that I know. He is a black belt under Nathan Orchard and Eddie Bravo. He has been leading 10th Planet Portland, one of the most successful 10th Planet gyms in the world for many years now. I've always been just blown away by Phil's philosophies and the way he looks at martial arts. So I wanted him to share some of these coaching ideas with you guys. Phil, again, honored to have you on today. I want to just start by asking you how you got into coaching and when did you become passionate about it? Uh, thank you for having me. It's awesome to be here. Um, when did I get into coaching? Well, I actually was given the opportunity to start coaching at a blue belt level, which I think was a really bad idea um, that, to put blue belts in charge of anything I thought was, uh, at the time, I thought it was great. I thought it was amazing. And I got to, I was, um, this was uh, while I was in college, I was training um, out of Eddie's gym in LA. And then when I was in college in, in the Portland area, um, I was training out of a local MMA gym. And so at the local MMA gym, I was just kind of the weird 10th planet guy. Um, and that was kind of like my reputation, but I was super technical even as a blue belt and I was really focused on technique and that was very driven by Eddie and the 10th planet system. And so uh, I got the opportunity to start coaching as a blue belt. And I feel like um, just a lot like, uh, kind of like your normal jujitsu reps on like an arm bar or any other technique if people say you need 10,000 hours to become a master or whatever. Um, I do have to give some credit to the opportunity to start getting hours uh, of coaching at a really early age, because I know a lot of practitioners that for whatever reason, never really coach till they get their black belt. And then someone says, Hey, can you start teaching at this gym, et cetera. And so they're, they're almost a beginner at coaching by the time they get their black belt, if they've never done it before. Um, and then I left, I left, um, I left that area. I moved back to Los Angeles and I became uh, a full-time student again, which was great. And I was just studying under Eddie directly, um, working with him, UKing for him. And uh, then I got my purple belt from Eddie. And then when I got my purple belt circumstances, I ended up moving back to the Portland area. And that was when Nathan Orchard and I uh, started 10th Planet Portland together. We were both purple belts. And then we both became, you know, full-time coaches at that point and competitors uh, and training partners. But we were coaching, you know, three, four or five days a week, starting at purple belt until now. And, and it's been, that was, you know, that was al uh, almost eight, nine years ago. Um, so from that time forward, I've been kind of wearing both the hats of uh, you know, student and coach uh, for the last eight or nine years. And so you started with Eddie Bravo. And I think a lot of people don't know that about your journey. And it was something that I became aware of just a couple of years ago. When I first met you, I didn't realize you had spent the majority of your early years with Eddie. And so you get your purple belt, you go to Portland. What was it like training, like the differences between learning and seeing the way Eddie taught and coached compared to Nathan Orchard? Like what, what are some of the differences between those two great minds? Um, well, when Nathan and I uh, started training together, I mean, I learned a lot from Nathan and, and he's learned from me. And, you know, we were both basically training partners, you know? Um, and so we, we kind of like taught each other and, and we worked together every single day on the mats to deconstruct um, all different kinds of techniques we were seeing, whether it was Gary Tonin or, you know, uh, or other, you know, high level competitors that were, uh, that were like prominent at that time. And when I started teaching, I was probably doing my best Eddie Bravo impersonation, um, as a coach, like I was, I had just come from Eddie's school. Eddie was my master is my master. And, you know, and, I learned a lot from him and I learned a lot from his teaching style. And so, um, you know, Eddie's, Eddie's a very passionate jujitsu coach and he really, really drills into the details. Nathan is also a very passionate jujitsu coach, but Nathan likes to see things 
more zoomed out than Eddie does, I think. And even though Eddie's very systematic, Nathan uh, has the one of Nathan's favorite sayings that I love is that uh, jujitsu should be one move or it should be reduced to one move or one idea, you know? And so that's kind of more, uh, Nathan takes more holistic approach and he has a big emphasis on um, movements, not moves and smoothness throughout your transitions and kind of smoothing out the edges uh, of your jujitsu as opposed to kind of having uh, uh, hard steps and hard stops um, the way a lot of systematic approach has. Mm. And you go up there, right? And so you and Nathan are kind of deconstructing a lot of things. And that was the thing that always blew me away about what was coming out of Portland. It was like, you guys were always on the of the next trend. And so whether it was you guys were kind of creating your own system, right? And creating your own moves. Like a lot of people talk about creating moves, but there's truly been moves created out of 10th planet Portland. And then you guys also kind of introduced the 10th planet world, uh, you know, the 10th planet system to a lot of the leg locks. You guys deconstructed a lot of this stuff, whether it was from, I know, like Aaron Milan, you guys had a heavy influence from Aaron, but also just watching Gary Tonin and those Donahair guys. How did you and Nathan deconstruct and really kind of create the system that, you know, that, that's kind of evolved into 10th planet Portland style? Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of it is, um, Something that's crazy about Nathan is that, you know, he and I have kind of very different, um, like experiential learnings, uh, from in jujitsu because Nathan was very much self-taught and Nathan, um, was studying, you know, from afar, whereas I was studying directly, you know, I was sitting in front of Eddie Bravo. I was having Eddie Bravo do moves on me. Nathan was in a garage with a couple of guys trying to work things out and he was going and competing and testing himself, um, you know, live essentially uh, to try and figure things out. So Nathan's style is very much his own with a lot of influences. Um, and, and, and my style is heavily influenced by Eddie as well. Um, but in terms of creating something new, what, what we always had an emphasis on was watching what the top guys were doing and the things that we were seeing and experiencing in competition, because we both had a heavy emphasis on competition. We were competing all the time. And so, you know, Nathan actually got to compete against every member of DDS, Eddie Cummings, Gary Tonin, and Gordon Ryan. And, you know, even though he didn't win those matches, like we all won because of those matches, because he, we, we had those matches we saw what was happening and we immediately took that real-time data broke it down and like yeah like you said a lot of people don't know that the term honey hole comes from 10th planet portland you know so like if you call the leg entanglement cross ashi or whatever uh if you call that the honey hole that's a 10th planet portland term um you know uh we have named other moves you know reverse spider web um Captain Morgan, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of other techniques that are specific, you know, kind of to our area and something really funny that, that has happened before, um, is because like 10th planet in itself is known for being very jargony and having all of these terms. And, and I, and I, I support that, uh, even though I'm, I'm personally taking a slightly different direction in my coaching right now, um, I think that the jargon is really important so we can have an, a conversation because I want to be able to say to you like scaff, I was sitting in, in, you know, quarter Z guard and then I was trying to build up to dog fight, but I was getting stuffed because of the wizard. And like you and I have an, a, a, an exact idea of what is we're talking about because we have this jargon and we have this ability to, to talk about it. Um, so I think that's really important, but um, you know, anyways, a funny story was that we, <laughs> there's a move called the Connie Basami. Um, and, and so uh, everyone knows the Connie Basami. And if, if I was coaching and I said, Connie, Connie, uh, or Connie Basami, that would be like, just like saying triangle, triangle or arm bar, arm bar, like your, your opponents are going to know what you're talking about. And so uh, one of my students, who's an excellent competitor, uh, Brown belt, uh, Kevin Hughes, um, who's a really good leg locker. We were at 10 planet headquarters for a big tournament. And so instead of calling it the Connie Basami or just around the gym, we started calling it the Kanye Pastrami. And that was just kind of like a joke. And so, but 
we were we were in the middle of a tournament and Kevin was uh was up and I just said Kanye. I said Kanye, Kanye. Uh just kind of like a little bit of a different take on it. And Eddie goes, We got a move called the Kanye. He's like, What the Kanye? Like this was news to him, you know, because it was just like secret slang that we were using at Portland, but it was just a joke really. But that's kind of, you know, at a certain point, like if you're going to have language, you have to also be able to disguise it. It's kind of like, you know, telling a guy on first base to steal second, you know, like you would everyone's like reading the same language. So you have to have disguises in your language now, you know? Yeah, that that's hilarious. And it's funny how up to date Eddie, Eddie stays on everything. And so I'm sure with oh, yeah. Anya, he was like, what's that i can only imagine uh kind of what ensued the conversation after that That, that's really funny and so you know you guys are purple belt starting to teach when did you guys really start to hit your strides as teachers and coaches when did you start to really feel the school having success in that northwest region oh man um first of all i could never i feel like we've done like we've had more success like people ask me all the time like did you think this was going to happen? And like, the answer is no, I didn't think, I didn't think any of this was going to happen. Like I, I, I didn't start coaching thinking we're going to build this big empire and we're going to have all these students and we're going to run these big events and we're going to have all these successful competitors. And I never thought any of that. I was just passionate about jujitsu and I didn't really have a choice because there was no 10th planet uh, affiliate in Portland when I moved here. And so the only choice was basically join another gym or, start a 10th planet gym and Nathan and I were the two highest ranked guys in the entire state. So at that time, you know, or in the area. So, um, you know, so that was kind of my only option was to start coaching and, and training 10th planet that way. And, you know, we, we hopped around to a series of different gyms, our, our very first gym, this was kind of like the first moment where I was like, wow, uh, I might be good at coaching or coaching might be something that like I really want to do like for my profession, because for the first five years that I was running the gym, I had other day jobs. I was always running a day. I always had a day job. Um, and I, it's only been, you know, in the last few years that I've been able to do exclusively jujitsu. But um, I remember our first gym that we were ever at uh, was a, was a full-time uh, martial arts school. And so the only time slot they would give us to rent was from 9 p.m. to 10.30 p.m. at night. So that was our only time slot, 9 p.m. And so we started out with like, you know, just like four or five guys that actually wanted to train that late at night. And and then over time it grew and it grew. And I was coaching a class and I remember that there was one night, like a bunch of people brought their friends in and there was like 24, and this is like in the first like year and a half of, of having the gym. There were like 24 people on the mat at one time. And I was like, holy shit, this is crazy. Like I'm teaching to 24 people. Cause I was used to teaching to like six people, you know? Um, and so that was the first moment where I was like, dang, like maybe what we're doing is in demand. Maybe people want this, you know? And then from that location, we moved to uh, our next location was at a, a professional MMA school um, that had a lot of MMA fighters and UFC fighters um, who were training there. And so we kind of came in and just became their jujitsu specialists. And that was really cool. And it was a great opportunity to build, but I don't think we really hit our stride until we moved to our next location and actually opened up like the official 10th planet Portland location where it was only it was only 10th planet Portland. It wasn't like inside of another school or we weren't leasing space from somebody else. And that was when we had like our, we saw like our student base start to like really grow and form like a community, which is really an important thing for us. So as a coach, how has your coaching style changed? I mean, obviously you start as a blue belt. Can you really, what are some of the early mistakes you made? Cause I can think it's funny. Like I think a lot of guys that started like myself, I started coaching at blue belt as well. I remember I was teaching like private lessons to guys and I remember some of the, the things I said and I'm like, Oh my God, I was so dumb back then. <laughs> uh, but what are some of those early mistakes that you can think of and how did you learn from those mistakes as a coach? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I literally look back at things that I said six months ago and I'm embarrassed. So I like sometimes I like like to look back to blue belt and and just be like, oh, yeah, like, you know, 12 years ago, um, 
what was what were the mistakes in my you know i i would say a lot of um you know it's kind of a cliche but there's the the dunning kruger effect of like blue belt jiu-jitsu where like in a white belt stage you you really are in tune with how little you know and by the time you get to blue belt because let you know it's not easy to get to blue belt it's not like it, it does take time and there's a lot of people who can't string together enough you know uh, enough consecutive training sessions or like be consistent enough to get to blue belt you know like um so it does take some some time and some skill and you have accomplished something when you get to blue belt but you shouldn't think that you know it all you know and so that kind of blue belt stage of like really having a grasp but also not having as deep of a grasp as you might think like the water is much deeper than what you realize and you you feel like you're swimming in the deep end but you're really just kind of like scratching the surface still and i think that that's something that's kind of rewarding and inspiring and humbling the more you continue in jujitsu is you're like wow there's a lot more surface to scratch here like it goes deeper it goes deeper it goes deeper it goes deeper and like recently i had the um pleasure of doing a seminar with Rafael lovato jr and zanji hibero and both of them like it was just you know we're talking about guys that have been a black belt for 14 years or a black belt for 25 years and you can just see how much deeper the jujitsu has sunk into them, you know, and how much, how much more comprehensive their command over the, the technique is um, just, it's, it, again, it's encouraging to be like, I hope I'm, you know, I hope I'm going in that direction as a black belt. And so how would you describe your current coaching philosophies? Like, what are you currently doing that's separating yourself, um, you know, from, from your past self? And even, you know, some of the, like, you feel like it's separating you from, like, other 10 planets. Like, how, how are you coaching your students at 10th planet? Um, okay, so 10th planet, Portland structure. Um, one thing that we have is I kind of call it the three pools. We have a fundamentals coach. We have, we have a fundamentals class, an all-levels class, and we have a – competition team or an elite class um and so in the fundamentals class the curriculum and we have a curriculum uh, both fundamentals and all levels run on a 20-week curriculum that repeats itself every 20 weeks um it doesn't necessarily repeat the same techniques but it repeats the same uh positional areas so we do two weeks of each position so we just finished two weeks of of side control and now we're moving into two weeks of half guard and then we're going to do two weeks of leg locks and then we're going to do two weeks of guard passing then we're going to do two weeks of mount two weeks of guard two weeks of butterfly and so on and so forth so um every time we do two weeks of half guard it's not always lockdown it's not always z guard but we do a consistency of two weeks in one position um i think that's been really helpful for us because what i've noticed is a lot of a lot of students can only make it to class maybe two days a week. Three days a week is starting to get like high. Four days a week is almost maximum for your for your uh, hobbyist, you know. And I remember when I was more of a hobbyist, that was my life. I was nine to five working at a job, and then I would get off work and I would just like Superman tear off my suit and like put on my rash guard, head to jujitsu, and then do jujitsu until you know. 10 o'clock at night and then I would go home and pass out and do the whole thing again. And, and then weekends I would, you know, I would drink and I would watch football. Like that was me. Like that was me in the beginning of jujitsu. And I thought I was a really dedicated student because I was training four days a week, like four evening classes a week. So <clears throat> if you have someone that's maybe three classes a week and they show up two weeks in a row, three classes a week, at least I know I'm going to get you six classes in a row that were all full guard. Every class in that sequence was full guard. So there's no, we don't have any, um, like you come, there's no like instructor's choice of like, hey, today we're doing arm bars, tomorrow we're doing triangles, the next day kimuras, the next day straight ankle locks. Like we don't, we don't jump around like that. I do give each coach leeway in terms of like how they wanna teach. Cause I think I want them to express themselves like through their teaching, you know? Um, but in fundamentals curriculum, I'm a little bit more strict. And then in the elite level, um, it's a lot more uh, focused on sparring, positional uh, sparring, drilling, 
and a lot less on instruction. So there's a lot less instruction happening at the elite level and a lot more focus on doing. Um, and at the fundamental and the all levels level, it's a lot more focus on instruction and drilling and kind of like staying comfort, staying like in control as we explore moving outside of our comfort zone. Um, probably the biggest thing though that I've changed in my coaching right now, and again, this has only happened like in the last three years of being a black belt, but I've just tried to start really embracing the simplification of jujitsu. And the analogy that I use a lot in seminars and in, in coaching is that we don't want an encyclopedia of jujitsu in terms of like being an operating manual. It's nice to have the encyclopedia of jujitsu so you can refer to it, but you can't bring it with you. You can't open up in that when someone's choking you, you can't jump to page 972 to like see this particular type of guillotine defense. Like even though that might exist, the better thing that we need is a, what I call a cheat sheet of jujitsu. So like imagine like what you could write on your arm to take into a test that would help you ace the test, you know? Mm. And that's, that's what I'm trying to arm my students with now um, is more of that cheat sheet mentality. And so one thing that I've been like, um, like I actually like this is, let's see it here. This is my my black belt tattoo. The viewers at home won't be able to see it, but this was the tattoo I got made as a black belt. And uh, I drew Ben Eddie and I drew a diagram um, about how like triangles and and like uh, the yin and the yang like play into jujitsu philosophy. But anyway, that's another subject. But uh, I've been trying to um, I've been trying to simplify. Uh, jiu-jitsu and so one of the things that I've noticed is in my mind there's five ways to break the leg and there's five ways to break the arm and I think if you if you kind of like search your jiu-jitsu like you find this to be true and when you simplify it that way you realize that the techniques are more similar than they are different and so I understand the utility of teaching for example, a Kimura different than an umaplata, but mechanically a Kimura and an umaplata are the same exact bent arm crank on the shoulder. So if you could teach people in a way the simplified version of jujitsu that's more universal, like, hey, there's only a few ways that the arm breaks. Like it can be bent down, it can be bent up, right? We usually call bent down arm lock Kimura, and we call the bent up block an Americana. The arm can be hyperextended at the elbow, it can be compressed at the elbow, and it can be broken at the wrist. That's the five, right? So any kind of compression lock would be like your bicep slicers, for example. But like there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different ways to do a bicep slicer. We can have a different name for every single one of them. We can hit them in different positions. But like something that I, that's been really powerful for me, and I'm sure probably for you too, is like you start to do a move and then you ask yourself, like you're rolling and you say, hey, like, I wonder if I could hit that move from over here. I wonder if I could hit that move using only my feet. Like, what if I try to Kimura somebody with my feet? Is that possible? Like, what if I try to Kimura you with my head? Is that possible? What about with my neck, you know? Um, and so I think that, I call it, I've been referring it to it as Kimura technology or, or, you know, arm, uh, Americana technology. And like, I'm a, like one of my favorite uh, moves is the Swifty lock is what I call it. Uh, but it's a bent arm lock or Sean Applegate calls it a Ude Garami, um, which I think just means bent arm lock, but it's basically an Americana, but it's an Americana from a side rear triangle that makes the Americana much, much stronger. So if you see that the Americana, if a lot of people don't believe in the Americana, but they would believe in this lock if they were stuck in it, you know, um, Ude Grami or Swifty lock or whatever. So I, I try not to um, necessarily name those as different things in my head right now. And it's the same thing with leg locks, by the way, there's only five ways to break the leg. Um, and like, if you listen to the one, what I said about the arm, you could probably figure out the five ways to break the leg, but like, I'll give you an example. Like a lot of people would say that an outside heel hook is different than a toe hold. But in my mind, there's no difference. Like there's no, 
there's no real difference between an outside heel hook and an outside toe hold, you know? And like, just similarly, there's no difference between the inside heel hook and inside toe hold. They're both like mechanically doing the same thing. And they might, you know, you might experience the break in slightly different places, but if you think about a toe hold more like you're finishing a heel hook, you'll probably be more successful with that toe hold, you know? So, and vice versa. So I think like trying to simplify these things um, and like seeing the simple, the simplifications and the patterns of simplifications across jujitsu can help you think less and just kind of do more. Mm. And uh, that's funny that you say that because I, I didn't realize for a long time, the relation between the toe hold and the heel hook. I, um, I, I would say it around Brown belt. I, I started kind of veer away from the leg locks. Felt like I was kind of losing that arm race. And I was like, I'm going to focus my attention on these things, you know? Um, and it's not until recently that I really figured out how to outside heel hook. And like you said, it's, it's very, very, very powerful when you can see those relations. And so when you, you saying that makes me kind of recognize like that's the cheat sheet then, right? Like if I understand how to do a toe hold, then that's going to make my, let's say I'd never seen an outside heel hook, but I understand the principles of the toe hold then I'm going to be able to apply an outside heel hook much more effectively right off the bat. Is that kind of the cheat sheet you're talking about? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's the cheat sheet. So if I can teach you, if I can distill for you certain principles that make the moves work, like the mechanics of the move. And again, the nice thing is that it's not a situation of like, oh, well, it's, it's, this thing over here, but it's that thing over there. And it's, it's different. And there's a lot of like crossing vectors, like, no, it's just pretty straightforward in terms of the ways that the human anatomy breaks down. And so we take that human anatomy and like, for example, like if you think about all leg locks, okay. Or all arm locks, like you have to think about the anatomy of the arm and the way that it breaks. So, you know, the arm, can be hyperextended at the elbow. If my elbow was double jointed, if everyone's elbow was double jointed, there'd be no arm bar, you know? So just by studying the human anatomy and the physics of it, you're going to see the natural ways that the human body works and breaks down. And then that becomes the cheat sheet of basically understanding the moving human anatomy, how to control it and how to stop it. And so in my mind, actually in my mind learning how to uh and, and where i really want to take this is i want to develop a fundamentals curriculum that has essentially a skill tree if you can imagine that kind of like a video game with a skill tree where like first you learn you learn like one sword swing and then all of a sudden like you have like special sword swings you know um and so like as your character develops you kind of gain more up the tree you know but like um, a good example would be one thing that, uh, that Nathan always said was that he said, there's three kinds of submissions. There's cranks, compression, and extension. And I think that's another really good, like part of the cheat sheet. Um, and so obviously like heel hooks, Kimuras, Americanas, these all fall into the cranking category, right? Uh, compression, everything that is arm in or not arm in, in terms of choking and also compressing of the, you know, muscle capsules, slicers, bicep slicers, etc. Those are all compression locks. Then there's extension locks where like we're talking about our knee bars and our arm bars, lateral knee bars, certain parts of the heel hook, uh, clover leaf. So anytime you have an extension, there's certain principles of extension. Anytime you have a compression, there's certain principles of compression. If I teach you, like this is a one class that I've been teaching recently that I really enjoy is I will teach you a mounted triangle that will improve your arm triangle, hmm. right? Okay. Because what's the difference between the technology in a mounted triangle versus an arm triangle? I just do arms and legs. It's just whatever, it's just the part of your body you're using to achieve the same goal, right? So what if I told you that I could teach you a form of triangling that would improve every arm in attack that you go for, you know, because the technology is re pretty much the same. You're just replacing certain anatomy with different anatomy that has to now accomplish the same goal. 
So in uh, a straight, in a, in a mounted triangle, my hip, for example, my top side hip is responsible for pushing your arm into your shoulder, uh, into your neck, right? That's my hips responsibility. And that's why we cut our angle. So the more we cut our angle in our, in our, uh, in our legs triangle, the more angle we cut, the more hip pressure pushes the shoulder into your neck, cutting off the arteries. Well, in the, in the arm triangle, your hips aren't involved at all, right? So what is the, what's the part of your anatomy that replaces the hip in the responsibility for pushing the shoulder into the neck? It's your head, right? So now my head has to be responsible for pushing in the same way my hip would have been responsible, right? And so by, by, by discovering the best way to move the body, now you have a set of commands or a set of like uh, goals to give any part of your body that's going to do that job, right? So whichever part of my body I'm going to assign this job to, it still has to maintain the same pressure. It still has to maintain the same angle. It still has all the same goals that makes the triangle a successful move. Gotcha. And so for instance, if you were working with a six month white belt in your perfect world as a coach to student relationship, you'd be like, Hey, today we're looking at a compression. And so immediately they've got things firing in their brain that they're going to have to accomplish before the, the compression is successful. Correct. That. And also, and ideally we could say like, Hey, listen, and this goes back to the skill tree idea, but we could say, Hey, listen, we're going to learn an extension lock called the arm bar today. Okay. And we're going to have a few uh, fundamental uh, parts of the arm bar that we want to emphasize every time we do this technique. And the ones that are very, very important are going to be the knee squeeze and the heel curl, right? We're going to need our knee squeeze and our heel curl. I call it the sorority squat, because if you remember to bring your knees together and curl your heels, you look like a sorority girl who's ready to take a picture. So if you remember the sorority squat, um, then you're always going to have knee squeeze and heel curl. There's a lot of people who have fought for a lot of arm bars and then end up losing them, not because they didn't, they failed to separate the grips or they failed to extend the arm. They just failed to squeeze their knees and, and curl their heels, right? Now, yes, I'm going to teach you this arm bar in a fundamentals class, and I'm probably never, ever going to show you a knee bar in fundamentals. You're probably going to have to wait till you get to an all levels class. You're going to have about six to eight months of training before you start repping knee bars. But guess what? It's an extension lock. Guess what? We have to isolate the joint. Guess what? We have to squeeze our knees and curl our heels. And if we do all of those things, like, yes, it looks slightly different. It feels slightly different, but it's essentially the same technique, same technology. And again, like the most advanced version, uh, not most advanced, but you know, if you take that one degree higher, if you go from your knee bar, knee squeeze and heel curl, and you fall out 90 degrees, now you have a heel hook, knee squeeze and heel curl. So I've been teaching you knee squeeze, heel curl since you were a day one white belt doing arm bars, right? You've been getting reps on knee squeeze, heel curl. But now when I say, now when we get to heel hooks and it's time to knee squeeze, heel curl, that hopefully that's built into you, right? And we didn't learn, it, it, it wasn't um, a situation of, you know, hey, here's an arm bar, it lives in a different uh, universe as the knee bar, which lives in a different universe as the heel hook. And let's learn them as all three separate things that are all really like have nothing in common. So thinking now about your fundamentals, all levels and elite class, typically, let's take that average student that's training three, four times a week. How long does it take for them to go from fundamental to all level and elite? So fundamental. Okay. So this is actually really interesting. So the way we do it to move from fundamentals to all levels only takes about five to six. It takes 20 weeks. So we just ask that you go through the curriculum one time all the way through. And then that just gets you going into the all levels class, like knowing what lockdown is, knowing what rubber guard is, knowing the basic path, knowing what spider web is knowing what truck is, you know, knowing how to do a no hands pass. Like you have quite a bit of experience by the time you're five to six months in. Um, and that gets you to the next level, which is the all levels. 
once you get to the all levels, you can stay in the all levels. Like we have brown and black belts in the all levels class routinely. So it's not, there's no cap on the all levels class. And the thing about the elite training is that I, it used to be elite training used to be a situation where it was like an invite only class. And now I'm more interested in when individuals uh, choose to move to the elite training in order to challenge themselves. So which most people, I recommend that they do the all levels class and then they stay after the all levels class for the elite training class um, and, or the competition team class. Um, and so, uh, but then there, we have some guys who are like black belts already and then they just show up just for the comp team class and that's fine with me too. Um, but in general, uh, you could be training in the, uh, in the most advanced classes within one year. The only thing that I, the only like absolute requirement for me is you are not allowed to move faster than you can move safely. And so if someone is, uh, you know, if someone is essentially not able or not ready to move at the speed that the class is moving in order to move safely, then they can't really participate in that class. So that's the main thing that I'm looking out for. So if I had someone who like, you know, they were six months in and they, now I actually don't even have anybody that's tried this, but it's kind of a funny idea. But if someone was like six months in and they had their first day of all levels class, and then they were like, I'm going to stay for the comp team class tonight too. Like they probably would get crushed by just the warmups because like we we routinely do just like two for two pretty hard takedowns for 10 minutes like for, as a warm up to comp team you know so like most most people who are just coming in probably wouldn't be able to hack that unless they had like prior wrestling experience but i have some guys i have some white belts who are state champion wrestlers or wrestling coaches um you know i have white belts who have a lot of other experience and so no no one's really, no two people are really the same, you know, but it's really kind of a, a case by case situation. And uh, for me, it's more about safety and speed than it is about like their ability to, to participate. As a coach, what does a blue belt mean to you? What are you looking at before you promote one of your students to blue belt? Um, so I have this uh, philosophy of expansion and contraction in jujitsu and so white belt is a belt of uh expansion because you're learning so much things you don't know by the time you get to blue belt the thing that i really want to see is that you have found one part of your game in jujitsu so like for me it was triangles like that was my i was that was probably one of the reasons i love 10th planet because i was just like overhook meat hook triangle all day like that was my game like from white to blue belt and so uh for like for sam hardy one of my black belts um it was guillotines he's a guillotine he like as soon as we showed him the guillotine like that became his move you know and i think that everybody uh everybody in jiu-jitsu has um has their move that they find and hopefully that happens between white belt and blue belt and i always tell people like just find one thing, like just get good at your one thing. But honestly, like you're, you should get so good at your one thing that I feel threatened by it. You know, like that should be, that's how good I want you to get at your move. And then once you get to blue belt, now we start contracting again and we start kind of like focusing in, trying to round out your game, trying to become a little bit more uh, understanding of the game that exists around your game. So when your game fails, then where do you go from there, et cetera? Um, and so by the time you get to purple belt, purple belt's another expanding uh, purple belts or purple belts are your typical like, hey, look what I just saw on YouTube last night. Like they want to learn all of jujitsu. So by the time you get from blue belt to purple belt, you should be not just good at like one thing. You should be starting to branch out a little bit and getting good at like a couple of other things. So maybe now you're, you're a really good straight ankle lock, but you also have a good guillotine, but you also have a rear naked choke, right? Um, and so uh, so that's kind of purple belt. Brown belt 
is again a contracting belt um where you know at brown belt i feel like you know a lot about your game and you feel like a responsibility to plug all the little holes before you get to black belt so brown belt is like a polishing you're like polishing your jujitsu what you you're polishing what you think is your jujitsu at brown belt you're like i've gotten good at these three or four things i'm dangerous here i'm dangerous there i need to work on my wrestling a little bit i need to work on my shots i need to work on this little part and then you kind of just keep polishing keep polishing keep polishing keep rounding everything out till you get to black belt and then from black belt and beyond it's like you know it's kind of like starting the game over it's kind of like you beat the game and now you start over and you have to go back to square one but you get to do it with like a much deeper understanding of like you know so like again i use a lot of video game analogies but just to like like when you know on your second playthrough of the game you're going to get through a lot faster and smoother and like you're going to know all the dungeons and know like where to kind of like put your time in so that's what i've been finding at black belt and also like a lot of simplification um and like a lot of like seeing the broader picture uh, like musashi says you know when you see the way broadly you see it in everything so i've been trying to like focus on that a lot at black belt but um you know i mean almost another thing that's interesting is that with enough time and consistency almost anybody can get a blue belt like almost anybody can get to blue belt but purple belt and brown belt are like real struggles that you have to fight for and you have to want them you know mm -hmm. and so uh and black belt is like a whole different level of commitment because i've i've known i've known a, a upsetting amount of people who made it to blue belt purple belt even brown belt and then we're like I'm just going to, my life's going to take a different turn. I'm going to go a different way. Um, and like, you know, if that's for health reasons, that's totally fine. But it just surprises me when guys get, uh, or, or, you know, get to black, get to brown belt and then decide to step away from it. And it's like, man, but at the same time, that's what makes black belt, black belt. Um, this is kind of embarrassing, but I was arguing on online with some dude yesterday and uh, I just get all fired up and this guy, I posted a stupid meme about Conor McGregor and this guy starts yelling at me and he's like, you're a clown. You're an idiot. Conor's making all this money for his family. I'm like, dude, come on, you know, like whatever. Um, and uh, he starts like, and anyway, so he starts talking to me, shit to me. And I'm like, dude, you can come to my gym any day, like any day you want to come to the gym, you want to roll, like, come on in. And he's like, I've been, I've been training jujitsu for 25 years. Okay. I've been doing jujitsu for 25 years. I was like, Oh wow. Okay. 25 years. So you're a black belt. He's like, no. I'm like, uh, uh, uh huh. So you're a brown belt. No. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's like <laughs> the amount of people that they still, you know, like you could, you could be out there talking shit, claiming you've been doing jujitsu for 25 years, but how come you haven't made it to black belt? Like it's, it's such a tough climb up the mountain, you know? And something I tell my students all the time is like, don't look at the top of the mountain, like look at the next, the next step in front of you. You know what I mean? Just look at that. Just concentrate on that next step, next step, next step. And then all of a sudden, like you're getting your purple belt and you're like, oh shit. Like I just, I've been enjoying this process, you know? And that's hilarious. Um, and it is, it, the climb gets steeper and steeper. And so each belt, it gets a little bit harder and more is required. I, I completely agree with that. But thinking back to blue belt now, because I think a school should be judged based on their blue belts, right? Because every school's got some like two or three monsters at the upper belts. And, and I've been to schools where, um, again, there was just a couple of monsters, you know, at the top that were, you know, top class jujitsu guys. But the, the blue belts were, were very underwhelming. Your gym has definitely one of the gyms that is known for, um, you know, blue belts being killers, blue belts being able to take out higher belts. I always think of you and Sean Applegate as coaches that can take a guy from white belt to a competitive blue belt that, again, can go enter an expert Naga and he's tapping out a brown belt in the finals to win the Naga belt. What is it about 10th Planet Portland and the way you guys train that creates killers at, at blue belt? Like, why are you guys able to succeed um, so early? Uh, that's a good question. Um, the first thing I should say is that 
I had no success. I did not have a lot of success uh, as a white belt or a blue belt as a competitor. I don't think I started winning. I don't, I didn't win any gold medals until I was a purple belt. And, Mm -hmm. and I didn't really win a lot of medals until I was a brown and black belt. Um, And so uh, one thing that I think is there's, we have a lot of, uh, we provide opportunities for increasing levels of adversity. Um, And I think that's a really important thing for blue belts and purple belts and brown belts is just like being able to increase adversity and increase adversity and always like essentially keep like tilting up the level. Um, I think that it's really easy for people to to stalemate or to stagnate um, when they when they kind of find themselves um, not really facing adversity anymore. Now, a lot of that is on them because there's a lot of things that students can do to make sure that they stay on their growth edge. And if they don't do that, it's not always my fault. You know, I mean, they have they also bear responsibility in terms of keeping themselves on their growth edge. Um, but I think another thing is that we're technique, we're very technique driven. We're very details driven. Um, we introduce heel hooks at blue belt to all of our students as well. We actually introduced them earlier uh, at white belt, but we do not allow students to heel hook each other at until blue belt. But once our students be, reach blue belt, all the other upper belts are looking at them like, I'm gonna fucking attack your legs. And so I think that gets people really comfortable really quickly. Um, something that Eddie Bravo told me one time was that like, there's no way to develop a high level defense other than in his words, walking through the fire. And I think that that is really true, especially in leg locks. And so, you know, you named, you said Sean Applegate and myself, and I'm sure that we have a similar philosophy of teaching our students to be pretty devastating with leg locks at an early level. And so we end up with blue belts and purple belts that are really good at leg locks. And then you have a guy who comes in to visit the gym, maybe a brown belt, maybe a black belt from another gym, and maybe his lineage, his experience, you know, they never really got into leg locks. He still doesn't really do leg locks that much. Maybe he's more of an IBJJF competitor. Of course, that's changing now with the new rules. But, um, you know, they come in and then they end up with, uh, with one of my blue belts who just knows how to attack an outside footlock and they end up tapping, you know, multiple times. And, uh, that I've seen that happen so many times on my mat that I just like, I'm, I'm like, okay, that's cool. Like, it's, it's great. You know, like tap that guy, but also like, don't, don't feel like your work is done because like, there's always another level. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of people think that <laughs> a lot of people think that they want to be, you know, world champions or whatever, but they're really not, not doing uh, the work it takes to be a world champion and they really wouldn't hack it if they could, you know? And so a lot of people who say themselves like, Oh, I'm gonna be a world champion, blah, blah, blah. It's like, if you, if you did the workouts that the world champions do every week, like you'd be broken and out for six months after two weeks. You know what I mean? Like you, you, so, and, 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 and this is the thing, this is what I mean when I say that. If you feel like, Maybe you're training in a, a gym in a kind of a smaller town or smaller area or whatever, and you don't feel like you have elite level training partners. You know, should you, should you necessarily quit your gym, move to Austin, Texas, and sign up with Craig Jones tomorrow? You know what I mean? Is that going to be, is signing up with Craig Jones going to be the thing that really takes you to the next level? Like maybe or maybe not. Either way, you're going to have to step up. Like, like, Craig's not going to take it easy on you. You know what I mean? Or like, you know, Gio Martinez is not going to take it easy on you. So you're going to have to step up your level if you want to swim with those guys, you know? And like, we, we try to keep the level high, like in our elite classes, we will routinely have like six, seven, eight black belts on the mat at one time, um, which is really awesome to have. And like, it, it, it feels really good to be hosting those classes um, and running those training sessions. But I also like, I'm really excited for my guys who are blue and purple belts that get to train in a class where they're training with six, seven black belts on the mat and they get to get rolled up by those guys, you know? So I think that, you know, especially for me, it was really important just to get 
my ass kicked a bunch on the way up and learn that way and learn to be defensive and learn to survive and learn to, you know, be able to control myself in tough situations. And then when I get offensive, um, you know, to do that technically and to try and try and be efficient in my movements. So that's kind of what we try to instill in them, you know, from the lower levels. And I try not to push them too hard. Um, but I, I call them like triple volunteers. So it's like, they, they like, you know, they showed up to class, they did class, they stay for an extra class. Like that that's telling me that they want to be pushed and they want to be, uh, you know, pressured essentially. Um, and if they wanted less, they can just do less and there's no hard feelings, but anybody that's volunteering for extra hard rounds is going to get it. So now thinking about the professionals, because you, you've had a handful of students that have done incredibly well on the competition stage. I mean, you talk about Sam Hardy, Sam Hardy, um, you know, one of your black belts that's competed on the, the biggest stage underneath Eddie Bravo and, and the CJJ world. Um, how do you prepare guys? Let's say Sam's getting ready for CJJ worlds or Nathan's, you know, getting prepared for, for CJJ worlds. What's a training camp look like under you? How do you build so an athlete's peaking at the right time? Yeah. Um, so for one, we do a lot of, uh, so I'm a big believer that your performance is more or less a re a result of your programming and that, uh, however you program yourself through your habits, you will perform in that way. So if you, every day you get on the mat and every day you warm up real slow and you come out and you kind of play a little bit of a slothy guard um, and you just kind of wait for like 10, 15 minutes to get warmed up, then like that's also how you're going to compete. You know, like you're going to start slow. You're going to come out slow. So you're your performance is going to be a direct, direct reflection of your habits. Right. And so you have to be in tune with that. And a lot of people, like, I know a lot of people that, you know, even myself included in some circumstances who have one set of habits and then they expect a different kind of performance. They're like, Oh no, no, no. On competition day, I'm just going to turn it up. I'm just going to, you know, show up this way. And it's like, but that's not, how you do day to day you don't do that you know and it's kind of like um it's like if you want to be if you want to be like a good early riser morning person then you have to start waking up at 6 a.m every day you know and like once you get used to waking up at 6 a.m every day you're going to be good but if you normally like if your normal routine is you sleep until noon every day and then tomorrow you got to wake up at 6 a.m that's going to be painful you know what I mean? Like that's going to suck. So we do a lot of rule specific stuff. Um, I like, uh, I like to definitely emphasize my students strong points. So I know, I know their game and I try to feed them not too much in the camp. Like I'm not going to like revolutionize their, their, the way they fight or anything. I'm just going to feed them, you know, small things that I feel like, compliments them uh compliments like what they already do and probably compliments like what i think the the opponents are going to be like you know like is it going to be very wrestly is it going to be playing a lot of top game playing a lot of bottom game playing a lot of ebi overtime um you know uh, uh one of our one of our coaches and students amanda lowen uh she's a black belt and she's now the submission underground uh champion and like she's undefeated like no one no one can beat her right now and part of that reason is because she's incredibly tough to finish and she has an amazing arm bar. So as soon as the rounds are over and she gets to overtime, like she's still really hard to finish. And then she gets on your arm and she finishes you. Um, and so, you know, we know what it is for her that makes her really good at EBI format, but now we're preparing her for the next tournament, which is who's number one. And she has like Gabby Garcia in her division. So that's like a whole different game plan whole different strategy you know for a, a tournament like that which is you know honestly um basically a referee's decision kind of judge's decision type match um i also am a huge fan of no time limit jujitsu training and the reason why i like no time limit i like no time limit and i also like short time limit um and and we do normal we do normal rounds too but 
here's two reasons why I like both those kinds. In no time limit, the there's no clock to save you. There's no overtime. There's no there's no uh, technic there's no technicalities that are going to get you out of having to do the work to make the match happen. And so, no time limit trains you to understand that action only happens when you make the decision to make the action happen. And so you have to be in the driver's seat and you have to be pushing. And so if you want the match to be over, you just have to end the match. And that could be, that could be mean quitting or that could mean winning, you know, like whichever way you want to go with it. Um, and then I like short time limits. So I do, I do a, a training session sometimes where we do three, uh, 10, three minute rounds. And what I tell people is like, imagine this is an eight minute round and you already wasted the first five minutes. Like now you have three minutes left to finish this, you know? So in a three minute round, three minutes is plenty of time for one person to achieve superiority over the other one and to try and work a submission, but it's not enough time to lose position, think that's okay, and think that you have time to recover work back into a second dominant position and try and finish. So in a three minute round scenario, you have to get in, get on them and get active. And you're not, you can never lose position in a no time limit situation. You can lose position as much as you want, but ultimately at the end of the day, you have to be the one that pulls the trigger to make it, make it happen. Confidence is super important for athletes. How do you keep your squad confident going into a match? Um, one by training really hard. Uh, I really genuinely feel like the people who train, uh, properly are the ones that feel like they have earned the right to do well. And I think that that's an important thing. I think that, uh, on the other hand, it can be very destructive if an athlete feels like, you know, maybe their diet wasn't on point, maybe their training wasn't on point. Maybe they had too many injuries leading up. And so they feel like, well, I haven't really, I haven't really pre uh, prepared myself enough to win this. And therefore, I'm just going to kind of have whatever performance I have. I think that's a really negative mindset. Like one of the things that I, I tell my students is like one of the worst competition mindsets to have is the let's see what happens mindset. Um, like you should never be there to see what happens. And then another derivative of the, let's see what happens mindset is the let's just have fun mindset. Um, because like you can, you're going to see what happens and you can enjoy yourself, but those aren't, the, that's not the competition mindset. Right. So, um, in terms of confidence, like I definitely am a believer that, you know, your hard rounds should be, uh, front loaded in the camp. And, and not necessarily like you shouldn't be getting trashed the week before or the, the couple of days before competition. Um, but I do want you to feel like you've been putting in work and that your body feels like strong. And like we use one and we use this analogy a lot in terms of talking about like what what blade do you want to use? Like if you imagine like polishing your blade or sharpening a blade, like maybe your blade is your guillotine, maybe your blade is your straight ankle lock or whatever it is like. Um, you, you should know which blades you're sharpening in anticipation of this competition. And you should kind of have an idea of like what you're going to end up using and relying on. And you should feel good about that. You should feel like you uh, have confidence in your ability to finish with those weapons. So really last question here. Um, this has been an amazing, amazing conversation, but what are some of the big mistakes you see other jujitsu coaches make? Like what are some of the glaring weaknesses that you see um, when you, whether you're visiting a gym or you're at a tournament and you're kind of seeing how a coach interacts with their athlete, what are some of the big mistakes that people make? Um, I mean, this is all my, this is just my opinion, you know, so you have to take that with a grain of salt. Um, what are some mistakes that I see other coaches make? Uh, talking too much. I think talking too much is one. Uh, I also like to talk. I like to uh, explain, but uh, there's a there's an educational philosophy that's called EDIP, E-D-I-P, which stands for explain, demonstrate, imitate, and practice. And I think that um, 
it's really that's really easy for jujitsu coaches to understand uh it's pretty much the format of every class like guys let me explain to you the arm bar now let me demonstrate the arm bar now i'm going to have you all imitate my arm bar let's all do it together leg over the head knee squeeze heel curl hips up okay we're imitating now we're going to practice we're going to do some live drills right so edip um and i think that a lot of people if they spend too much time on the ed uh and not enough time imitating and practicing practicing is probably the most important um and obviously like coaches want to uh feel like they really got the information across but there's so much of the learning process that has to be learned in a tactile fashion from the student actually performing the move. And so coaches, I think are better off um, showing the move with enough context to get the students drilling and then walking around. Like I like to set, I like to set like a 10 minute timer and then walk around to each group and give each group one-on-one feedback in terms of like what they can improve while everyone else is still drilling the move. By the end of that, we usually get pretty far. Um, so I think that like, you know, like overall talking too much can be, can be a downside. I also think that, um, there's another, I mean, there's, there's two sides to, to all of that, but like, I, I personally believe in not too much structure in the martial arts community, but like some structure is absolutely necessary. Um, and so I think that like, I've been to gyms where it's a very, very informal training structure. And I've been to other gyms where it's a very formal training structure. And for us, like at 10th Planet Portland, for example, at the end of every class, we bow out and we shake hands. Um, but we don't force students to bow when they step onto the mat, you know? So I think that culture is really important. And I think that every gym has to kind of find their culture, set their culture and, and preserve and defend their culture. Um, and I think that culture also comes from the top. So, you know, the head instructors and all the coaches need to be on the same page in terms of like what the culture is. So if, for example, like you have a culture that says uh, that you should be, uh, you should be on time to class, then you shouldn't have the instructor showing up late to class, you know? So I think that like leading from the front is really important. Um, and I also think that like something I learned from Eddie Bravo also is just like class has to be fun. Like students have to enjoy the class experience. That doesn't mean that every class has to be like fun and games, but at the end of the day, like you have to understand that most of the students who come to jujitsu are not there to be world champions. Most of them don't even care about competition. Most of them are just there to have fun get in shape, learn a martial art, uh, getting self-confidence, feel better about their bodies. You know, um, that's the, that's most people. So if you gear your whole gym towards like competition and competitors, you're really missing the majority of practitioners. And I think that you don't want to miss those people. I think that's a, those people are important to your, to your gym and to your community. Um, and man, there was something else I was thinking when you asked the question, but um, you know, over overall, like I, I'm, I've been impressed with most of the gyms that I I go to visit. Like I think that having instructors that are passionate, um, that care, and that are that are engaged, you know, with the students is is honestly the most important thing. Like if you're not engaged, if you don't show up to class, and you're not excited to teach, if you don't really want to be there then the students are going to feel that and they're not going to, they're not really going to want to be there either. Um, and on the other hand, when you show up and you're passionate, like the students feel your energy and they feel your excitement and then they want to be there, you know, and then they want to learn, they want to get better. Um, I think it's important to roll with your students, train with your students, you know, let them feel what it feels like to roll with you. Um, I think it's important to bring in other instructors and to encourage your students to travel and to seek out, different instructors for different perspectives. Um, that's something at 10th Planet Portland that we're really passionate about is like both bringing in instructors and like a variety of different opinions um, and having our and exposing our students to that. So we don't just have 
uh, seminars with 10th Planet guys. We even have seminars with guys from other affiliations. I love it when my students go to other schools and they train and we try to cross train with as many people as we can um, and just kind of have like an open, generally open, welcoming environment. So if anybody's ever in the Portland area, feel free to come drop in 10th Planet Portland. You are 100% welcome. Phil, it's been a pleasure having you on. I've really um, enjoyed this con uh, conversation tremendously. How can people follow you and kind of what's next for you? Um, what can people expect to see from, from you in the, the near future? Um, yeah, so uh, people can find me on Instagram is best at Phil Schwartz 10P. Uh, my other projects, uh, 10th Planet Portland, Shugio Invitational, and Nogi Summit are also all on Instagram. Uh, people can find me at 10 planet Portland every day of the week. And, um, if you want to come in and roll, you're welcome to, um, in terms of what's coming next for me, uh, my son is due in November. So I'm excited about that and jumping into parenting and raising a jujitsu family and learning all about that. And then, um, I'm also hoping to, uh, get some more Nogi summits and some, Maybe yes, maybe hopefully a second season of the Shugio Invitational on the way. So those would be my my next big projects. But uh, my family is going to be probably taking a lot of my time for the next little bit. So I'm really excited about all of that and just to keep coaching and keep the, the generally the level of jiu-jitsu high in the Northwest. Well, I'll be thinking of you and your lovely baby. I hope everything goes well. And um, yeah, dude, hopefully we can do this again soon. And I'd love to see another Shigio season. That first one was incredible. So. Thanks so much, man. Yeah, it was awesome to be here. And I would love to do this again soon. I feel like we have a lot to talk about. Definitely, man. Guys, thank you for all the support. I appreciate you. Until next time, peace.